It's the Evening Under Lamplight Podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson, moving along through Dante's Purgatorio, now at Canto V. We left Dante following Virgil on the path, not the steep path up the hillside, but the path that circles the mountain at this level, which is sloping upwards, but not a steep climb. They've left the crowd of the indolent behind them, but Dante hears one of them cry out that he sees Dante not casting a shadow. Dante turns around to see them all just standing amazed. Is is Dante amazed to see this, or perhaps even proud of all the attention he's getting? In any case, he's quickly reprimanded by Virgil. You are letting yourself get pretty distracted, he says, and you're slowing down the pace. What does it matter to you or to your journey that these souls are gaping at you? Try to be more steady, because if you let yourself get distracted by unimportant thoughts, you'll lose focus on the things that are really important. Yes, of course, here I come, replies Dante, blushing in shame so sincerely that, of course, Virgil forgives him this lapse. Well, after all, Dante's on this journey partly to discover the faults within himself so he can be ashamed and turn away from them. As they proceed farther, they see another group of souls coming towards them. This group is chanting Psalm 51, Miserere, Have pity upon me, O God, after thy great goodness. And these people too stop and stand in amazement when they see that Dante is casting no shadow. There's something comic, I think, in the way their chanting suddenly shifts into a drawn-out, Oh! Two emissaries from this crowd come forward to find out more about this living soul traveling in this region. Virgil tells them to go back and assure the others that, yes, Dante is a living man, if that's what they want to know, and this detail may be important to them. The two rush back to the others, give them the news, and then and then all of them charge down the sloped path towards Dante. They want to ask you to do something for them, Virgil says. Listen to what they have to say, but keep walking as you listen. The group seem to speak in unison, or perhaps just all at once, imploring Dante to see if he recognizes anyone among them, so he can tell people back in the living world, so they can pray for his soul. They beg Dante to stop, but as Virgil advised, he only slows that down a little. And then they explain that, like the indolent souls he's just left, they too did not repent until the last minute, not because they were too lazy and couldn't be bothered with the hard work of turning their lives around. No, their problem was that they had a sudden, indeed violent, death and only at the final moment did they perceive a flash of understanding of what the true nature of their lives had been, and then they repudiated that life. Dante replies gracefully that he he, he can't see any familiar faces in this crowd. <laughs> Maybe he didn't know too many murdered people. But he says, if he can do anything for these souls headed for heaven, and by his hope also to head for heaven, he will be happy to help. Now we hear three different souls ask Dante for help. First comes Jacopo del Cassero, who asks Dante if he should ever find himself in the region between Romagna and the Kingdom of Naples. Could he please ask them to pray for his soul, since he knows he has a lot of sinning to cleanse himself from? He then relates the occasion of his death, 
stemming from the enmity between him and Azzo Marquis of Este, who had him waylaid on the road to Oriaco. Trying to escape from his assailants, Jacopo headed into the marshy ground in, instead of riding to a safe city. That was his mistake. He was overtaken and killed, and as he lay in the mud, he could see his blood pooling out before him. Jacopo has had his say, and he makes room for someone else, with an even more gruesome story to tell. This is Buonconte da Montefeltro, who begins with one of those elegant exchanges that show heavenly grace. May you achieve the desired end of your journey here, and please take pity and help me. He explains that no one back alive, not even his wife Giovanna, is praying for him. Dante knows him, at least by name, and asks a sort of irrelevant question. How come no one was able to find your body after the Battle of Capodino? This starts Buonconte off on a long narrative about his final moments, full of details about the Italian landscape and geography, which I, which I won't go into here. The basic story is that Buonconte was mortally wounded in the throat and wandered off on foot, leaving, he adds in graphic detail, leaving drops of his blood behind as he walked across the ground. Finally losing the power of speech and of sight, he died, but not before uttering or just saying to himself the name Mary and crossing his arms over his chest, the only way he could show his final repentance. He supposes most people think he was sent to hell, but he wants Dante to tell people the real story. And, and here comes the good bit. At his death, an angel of God came to fetch his soul for salvation. But one of hell's devils showed up too, expecting to take the soul down to damnation. That devil is outraged at being defeated at the last minute, but he still has to have his puny satisfaction, and if he can't have the soul, at least he can do what he wants with the body. Drawing upon whatever power he has, he draws together various meteorological phenomena. Buonconte's description here is one of the great moments in Dante, I think, and instead of trying to paraphrase it for you, let me read Dante's lines in the Hollander's translation. That demon roused the fog and wind. Then, when the day was spent, he shrouded the valley from Pratomagno to the Alps in mist, and darkened the sky with clouds, so that the pregnant air was turned to water. The rain fell, and the overflow that earth could not absorb rushed to the gullies, and gathering in surging torrents, poured headlong down the seaward stream with so much rage nothing could hold it back. At its mouth the swollen Acciano found my frozen corpse and swept it down the Arno, undoing at my chest the cross my arms had made when I was overcome by pain. It spun me past its banks and to the bottom, then covered and enclosed me with its spoils. And that's the end of his speech. And immediately a third voice speaks up in an entirely different tone. This is someone who calls herself La Pia, the pious one. She begs Dante after he is back home and has rested up from his long journey, how considerate of her, to remember her and presumably to pray for her soul. 
She does not give any specific details, but simply says that the man who married her knows how she was undone. Presumably he killed her, but we're not told exactly. And the canto ends. As usual, we begin our discussion with a look at the shape of the canto. This allows us to step back, and before we investigate what it is saying, we can glimpse a pattern which can open up new relationships between the various parts of the canto. The canto begins with a continuation of the people from the previous canto, with the indolent souls noticing Dante's shadow and their amazement and Virgil's reproach at Dante paying attention to their astonishment. Then we move on to the new group, the focus of this canto, the ones who died a violent death. First we see the group as a whole, and then we focus on three separate souls. First Jacopo, then Bonconte, whose narrative is more expansive than Jacopo's, and then La Pia, whose narrative is considerably shorter than the other two, but softer and even more courteous, and perhaps more mysterious. We see the indolent just pointing and staring in amazement, but the next group actually does something, rushing over to Dante to ask for help in the form of prayers from living souls. We are a little higher up the slope of this level, and we can see, just from the pattern here, that we are with a more advanced category of saved souls. But let's go back to that first incident. There's something, there's something odd about it. Dante says someone behind him, one of the indolent, points to him and cries out about Dante's shadow, and then Dante turns around to see what's going on behind his back. But how does Dante know that person had pointed if his back has been turned? I don't know how to resolve that, neither, I think, do various commentators. Dante's lost in amazement, too, and says twice that they're staring, poor me, poor me, at me, at me. Is he mirroring their astonishment with astonishment of his own? Is that the real problem, not the act of turning around? Virgil breaks the spell, though. What, what, what does it matter what they think of you? Don't get caught up in that. When you leave one part of your journey behind, don't look back. We're reminded here also of the importance of keeping your mind focused. Attending to those souls behind him deflects his attention from the task at hand, which is progressing up the slope. This should remind us of what Dante had been saying at the beginning of the previous canto, where he noticed that being intent on one thought can drive all others out of your mind. He'd seen the lesson, but now he forgets to apply it. <laughs> this, it seems to me, is typical of the way we learn. We need the learning to be reinforced before it really sinks in. Virgil is the reinforcement here. And then these new souls. They approach, chanting the Miserere, Psalm 51. The souls on the boat coming to the shore of Purgatory all sang their psalm in unison. These souls sing, I think, in alternating verses, a kind of tennis game, one group singing a verse, then tossing it over to the other group to sing the next one, and then back again. <laughs> There's something light-hearted about this, but then it all dissolves into a moment of comedy, I, I think it's meant to be comic, when the singing stops and they just let out their gasp of surprise. Oh! The Miserere is a psalm asking for mercy from God. Ask and ye shall receive, and here we can see God's mercy appearing right away in the person of Dante, 
who shows up as someone who can take their messages back to the living world and encourage others to pray for the dead souls in purgatory. Here's the third time. Is it three? Have we lost count? The third time we hear about the need to pray for the dead, hammering in the importance of such an act and forcing us, modern readers, to take this point seriously, not necessarily to agree with it, but at least to spend some time trying to understand what it's about. We try to do this in the previous two podcasts, and we'll have more to say about this later on. The problem here is that if you, one of the living souls, know your dead friend or relation has been damned to hell, then there's no point praying for that person. The situation is fixed. But if they have been saved, even at the last moment, or especially at the last moment, then you know you can and should pray for them. Time is still running in purgatory, and the souls are in movement here. Thoughts and prayers can have some effect. So it's very important for Dante to bring news back to the world about who's made it to purgatory, especially about those who've made it against all expectation. Now people know they should start praying for these souls. Virgil warns Dante not to stop but to keep moving as he listens to these souls. It's okay, though, to slow down, especially when the others implore him not to move so fast. Dante is here not, as he usually is, so he can learn more and heal his own soul, but so that he can serve others and help heal their souls. Th though, in fact, the goodwill and benevolence he shows here must surely work to purify him, too. Now, here are those who died violently or suddenly, murdered, killed in battle, run over by a bus, a sudden massive heart attack. They haven't had time to confess their sins and receive absolution, and so have come to their final moments with the weight of sin upon them. But at the very last minute they saw the truth of their ego-centered lives and turned away from such a life. That's enough, as we know, to save the soul. And presumably these are people whose souls were stained by a lot of sin, which they were not sorry for until the last minute when they realized that their time was out. This crisis is the alarm that clears their mind of selfishness. That's another way of saying they turn to God. Many people today speak of their wish for a quick death. Of someone in an accident, we're often relieved to hear that he or she died instantly. We take that to mean they didn't suffer much, but it can also mean they may not have had time for this final moment of repentance before all chance of free will was dissolved. <laughs> but of course, we never know. And it's not just repenting that goes on in this final moment. The souls speak about repenting and forgiving. It's not enough just to say you're sorry, apparently. You have to take some action to put those words and thoughts into some kind of actuality. We'll see how the souls we meet show that they've forgiven at least some who have done evil to them. Now let's look at the three individual souls who speak to Dante. We'll see in the next canto that there were many more who spoke with him, but here he shows us just three. First, there's Jacopo del Cassero, who was born just a few years before Dante. He says he came from Fano, but he spent much of his life further north. Yet he asks Dante to take back news of his salvation to the people of Fano, where his roots lie. Like so many of the others, well, all of them actually, 
he gives only selected details of his life. We know a bit more about him than he admits. He was involved in the dirty politics around Tuscany and then was called to Milan to a position of leadership, but on the way his political enemies, specifically Azzo d'Este, had him ambushed and killed. He says he thought he was secure on that journey, but he wasn't. And has he forgiven that Marquis of Este? He says that Azzo was more hostile toward him than he needed to be. Yes, all right, that's a kind of forgiveness. Come on, man, you didn't have to go to such extremes, you know. Well, he certainly doesn't show any inclination to think ill of Este and wish him harm, as someone in hell certainly would. We remember Manfred from Canto Three, whose bones are thrown out of church lands, lying open to the air. Jacopo's body also lies out of the way, buried in mud. We're invited to remember that it's not the fate of the body that ultimately matters, but, of course, the fate of the soul. We can apply it to our psychological perspective, I suppose, by remembering that when we resolve to turn from some self-promoting habit, the chances are that our bodies will suffer some amount of pain, withdrawal, or frustrated desire, or loss of comfort. In the end, these, these pains are not the point. Even if we lose our good looks, our beauty will shine through from our healthier souls. Then, almost immediately, these souls are in a rush, unlike those indolent ones back there. Almost immediately, up comes Buonconte da Montefeltro. We may get a jolt when we hear the name Montefeltro, as we remember one of the most vivid stories from the Inferno about Guido da Montefeltro, the father of Buonconte, who thought he was safe by becoming a Franciscan friar after a life of military prowess and treachery, but who was tricked by the Pope into one final act of deceit. When he died, St. Francis came to fetch him to heaven, but a demon claimed him for hell because of that final sin. Though if we read carefully, we see that Montefeltro's reformed life was not that virtuous after all. He retired and became a friar for selfish reasons, not because he strove for a selfless life of devotion and service. So, when his son, Juan Conte, tells us about the moment of his death, we see the inverse of his father's fate. Juan Conte, a man of sinful habits, repenting at the last moment, even when he could no longer speak, and thus foiling the demon from hell. So, one more unexpected salvation here on the mountain. And who was Juan Conte da Montefeltro? He was the leader of the Ghibelline party and helped oppress the Guelphs in Tuscany on several occasions. Then, at the Battle of Campodino in 1288, he led the Ghibelline party, but they suffered their final defeat at the hands of the Guelphs, and as we know, he was killed. This was a battle where Dante was present, fighting on the other side. Buonconte is thus an enemy of Dante's, and so again we see Dante not bearing a grudge against his enemies, but giving this man not only a place in salvation, but also that generous, vivid, and moving speech, one of the highlights, I think, of the whole long poem. But no one is praying for his soul back among the living, not even his wife. I wonder what he must have been like in real life that no one seems to wish him well, or, or is it that he lived such a bad life that no one believes that he could possibly have been saved? 
We can see his forgiveness, though, in the way he simply feels grieved, but not aggrieved, that no one's praying for him. Like Jacopo, he does not wish anyone any harm. And like Jacopo, his body has been cast aside, even worse than Jacopo's, which might someday be discovered in the muddy swamp, whereas Buon Conte's is lost forever in the sea. By the way, Dante asks a good question, one that must have puzzled people back then. How come we never found your body? I think this question can give us a glimpse into a moment of history as the survivors after the battle search among the dead for the leader of the defeated party. Buoncante's extensive geographical description indicates that he must have wandered a few miles away from the battlefield, leaving that trail of blood all the way, growing weaker and weaker from the wound in his throat. And finally we have La Pia, just a few lines at that significant position in the final stanzas of the canto. She is gentle and kind and brief, completely opposite to the violent stories we've just heard. We know very little about her, we don't even know exactly who she was who calls herself La Pia. And was it her husband who killed her, or had her killed? He knows who did it, if it wasn't he. But let's also ask about her soul. If she had turned from selfishness earlier, then she wouldn't be here with the late repentant, would she? So what was she like? Was she perhaps like Francesca, found in bed with someone else? Was she so extravagant that she was ruining her husband? Or was she involved in some political battles like the other two we've just heard from? All of these are possible, but we just don't know. All we know is that she repented at the last minute, but we don't know what she may have repented of. But, but what we do know is that she, a rare woman's voice in this region, is courteous enough to place herself now second and tell Dante that he must rest up from his journey before he does anything to help her. That's a good way to end the canto. Next time we see more of these souls crowding around Dante, we learn a little more about the efficacy of praying for the dead, Virgil meets a paisano, and Dante gives his first burst against the terrible state of things in Italy. Ready for that? See you there.